Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold, and we're going to have a fantastic hour. Uh, Jeff Redorn is here in studio with me, my friend and Bible teacher, and you are going to love this hour. We're going to try to cover a lot, and if we don't get it all done, we're going to do it in another hour part two, because this is an ambitious uh, undertaking, Jeff. We're going to talk about Romans uh, 7, but we're also going to touch on Romans 6 and 8 as well. So this is going to be a lot to cover. I, I would encourage you to grab your Bible, get it open, grab a notebook, jot notes, and if you are going to need anything clarified along the way, you can always send me a text message, 877-933-2484, but this is going to be a fantastic hour. Be right back in 60 seconds with Jeff Dorn. We live in a connected world, but no advancement in technology can offer real peace, hope, or encouragement. You can use technology to stay connected to the true source of life, God, when you download the free Faith Radio Network app. The app allows you to listen to previously aired programs, read articles, and listen to the live stream. Search for Faith Radio Network in your app store to download the free Faith Radio Network app today. Through Jesus, we have hope. I just wanted to tell you what an integral part of my faith journey Faith Radio has been. And some of the programs have truly blessed me. Susie Larson, Carmen LaVerge, Bill Arnold, and several others have made such a difference for me. And now that I'm moving, at least I have the Faith Radio app so that I can continue to listen. Daily hope and encouragement on Faith Radio. All right, we're going to have a fantastic hour with Jeff Dorns in studio. We're going to talk about Romans chapter 7, touch on 6 and 8 as well. It's going to be a fantastic hour. Jeff is a teacher at Grace Church in Eden Prairie. He's teaching on end times right now, but he's all over everywhere. Jeff, welcome. <laughs> Hi, Bill. So you go to Arizona for six weeks. A lot of people play golf. You study the book of Romans. I did. I actually, when I went down to Arizona for a few weeks, yeah. I did. I said, well, what am I going to study? So I have a group that is in the book of Romans right now. And it's like, okay, I'm missing my group up here. So I'll spend my time studying the book of Romans. So yes, I, that's what I did. So I was also listening to your radio program actually nice. when I was done. I would expect too. you to. <laughs> yeah. I Let's do. jump in. We got a lot to cover. Well, so I did. I, I have Romans 7, you know, Romans, the book of Romans, um, is considered by many to be, you know, the heart of the New Testament. It's full of doctrinal statements and doctrinal truths. Uh, in fact, one commentator I found says it dwarfs most of Paul's other writings, an alpine peak towering over the hills and villages. Mm. And it really is. But it's also one of the most debated books, right? So, in fact, uh, Luther credits the book of Romans. So this monk, you know, in Germany some 500 years ago is sitting there studying Romans in 
his uh, in in his room, and he then ends up penning this thesis, this ninety five thesis that he nails on the Wittenberg, you know, chapel door, and started the entire you know Reformation, the whole movement breaking away from the Catholic Church, uh, basically on this simple concept that we see, in, especially in Romans chapter five, that justification, salvation, comes by faith alone, and that started the entire. Um, you know, Protestant Reformation. Luther, in fact, later wrote in one of his commentaries this. He said, the epistle is in truth the chief part of the New Testament and the purest gospel. It would be quite proper for a Christian not only to know it by heart, word for word, but also to study it daily, for it is the soul's daily bread. Wow. He said that That's about fantastic. Romans. So I memorized the book of Romans. When I, no, I didn't. No, good. Oh, I'm relieved. Wouldn't that be awesome, though? Yes, it would. Me- I, There's I've someone done, out there that has, for sure. Oh, I'm sure. Plenty I, of, yeah. I, I once memorized three chapters of Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount. That's the biggest section of scripture I've ever memorized. So, And that took a long time to do. So, uh, But so Romans is considered the heart, and Romans 5, 6, 7, 5, 6, 7, 8 is really considered the heart of Romans, and uh, not without debate, however. So, and as we're going to see today, um, while there's many debates in, in, in throughout Romans, Romans 7, especially the second half of Romans 7, uh, verses 14 through 25, is uh, is often debated, and it has been for hundreds of years. This is where Paul says, you know, I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. Right? I often have taught on this passage in the past, and I call this the doo-doo chapter, right? <laughs> this is Paul's doo-doo chapter. Why do I continue to do what I don't want to do? Um, Romans, uh, John Stott, uh, a famous theologian and commentator, uh, wrote this about Romans 7. I love this description. He says, Romans 7 is well known to most Christians, people, because of the debate it has provoked about holiness. Who is the wretched man that Paul was talking about in Romans 7, who gives us a graphic account of his inner moral turmoil, cries out for deliverance, and then immediately appears to thank God for it? Is this person regenerated or unregenerated? Hmm. And there's the heart of the debate. So Stotz is saying, is this Paul that Paul is describing, in the present tense, by the way, Paul says, why do I continue to do what I don't want to do and don't do what I want to do? Is this person saved, born again, regenerate, or is this person unsaved, unborn again, unregenerate? So that's the heart of the controversy. Um, I use a NIV study Bible from Zondervan. I picked it up years and years ago. I've thought about switching over the years, but I have too many notes in it, like a lot of people, Mm -hmm. and I just can't give it up, so I don't. They say of this section in the NIV Study Bible, which I found actually really, really refreshing. The NIV Study Bible actually does a really good job of kind of framing. When there's controversial passages, they do a good job of pointing out these differences of theological opinion. They say this, whether Paul is describing a Christian or non-Christian experience has been hotly debated throughout the centuries. That he is speaking of the non-Christian life is suggested by, one, the use of phrases such as sold as a slave to sin and oh, what a wretched man I am, which do not seem to describe a true born-again Christian. In favor of the view that Paul is describing the Christian experience is, one, he uses the present tense throughout the passage, for example. So a little history. How has the church, not, I'm not a huge, you know, his church historian, huge doctrinal historian person, 
But I thought I would look it up to see, well, how has the church handled this passage over the years? And I found that many of the early theologians in the early centuries believed that Paul was talking about himself as an unsaved person. Paul would never call himself, they said, a slave to sin. Paul, as a saved person, would never cry out for deliverance, saying, oh, what a wretched man that I am. So they understood it as Paul describing an unsaved and unborn-again person. It was really Augustine that who originally believed Paul was talking about an unsaved man, but then changed his mind later on, that really influenced the Protestant reformers and in probably a lot of ways has become the the default position of the church today, the Western church today, especially the evangelical church. So I don't know if you've ever heard a teaching on this. Uh, I know I have taught on this over the years, and I kind of have defaulted to this idea that this is Paul as a believer saying, why do I continue to do what I don't want to do and can't do what I want to do? Because as a Christian, we identify with that, right? Mm -hmm. So that's a powerful identification. But we're going to have to decide today, just because we identify with the passage, is that really who Paul is describing? Or, as he says, is it truly about a person that is a slave to sin? And we're going to have to decide, as a true born-again believer, a slave to sin who has sin living in them? Or has a true born-again believer been set free from sin and become a slave to righteousness, as Paul just describes? So, in my 20 years or so of studying the Bible, I have actually gone back and forth on this issue. Paul is talking about the past. now. he's talking about the present self, oh, the past. And I actually have written in my Bible, in one of my notes, in this part of the Bible, past or present. Well, studying down in Arizona, I've concluded, and I think it's past, and I wanted to show you why. Awesome. Okay? Yeah. So to do this, we have to set the context of Romans 7 a little bit, and that is to briefly walk through Romans 6, which immediately precedes this, obviously. So I want to describe some of the ways that Paul goes back and forth. In Romans 6, he's going back and forth between describing an unbeliever, describing a believer, going back and forth. So he says things like the old self, this old self that is a slave to sin in verse 6. In verse 16, he says it again, that the old self, the unsaved person, is a slave to sin. In verse 17, a slave to sin. In verse 19, he's a slave to impurity. In verse 20, he's a slave to sin. You get the theme going? Mm -hmm. He's describing the old, unregenerate person, the unborn-again person, as a slave to sin. In verse 20, he says that this unsaved person is free from the control of righteousness in, in 7, he later goes on to say he's in the realm of the flesh and a slave to sin. On, in contrast to that, for the believer, Paul describes the believer as having died to sin, verse 2. That the old self was crucified to sin. That they're no longer a slave to sin, have been set free from sin. That verse 6 and 7, one of the keys there. That if you are truly saved, you're no longer a saved to, slave to sin, but have been freed from sin. In verse 11, in chapter 6, verse 11, he says that we are dead to sin, and sin will no longer be your master. Right? It sure sounds like in 7, when we get to there, that Paul is describing a scene where sin is still, he's still a slave to it, 
It's still living in, and he has no power over it whatsoever. And in verse 18, here's the, the probably the pivotal line. You as a believer, Paul says, have been set free from sin. So we're going to have to talk about exactly mm-hmm. what that means. What does it mean that a born-again believer has been set free from sin and has become, verse 18 and 19, a slave to righteousness? All right, Jeff. I think because I need to take a short break and I don't want to be gone for very long, let's just pause here. We okay. come back. We'll continue uh, how Romans 6 ends and we'll move on to Romans 7. Jeff Dorrance, my guest. We'll be right back. Okay, I hope I gave you enough time to sharpen the pencil again and get a sip of coffee or water or nice herbal tea. Jeff Redorn's in studio. We're talking about Romans chapter 7, but we're touching on Romans 6 and getting to the end of Romans 6 before we move on to the big chapter 7. Hmm. So the last verse of 6, of course, is this, for the wages of sin is death, verse 23, but the gift of God is eternal life. So this contrast between the saved and the unsaved, back and forth, he then concludes with this greatest contrast of all, right? If you're still under sin, that's going to result in death. But if you've been set free from sin through being saved by believing in Christ for salvation, you've believed and saved, you've been set free from sin, and now your destiny is no longer death, but it is eternal life. Mm-hmm. What a great verse, that's exciting. isn't it? I, mean, I love it. Eternal life is a big deal. By the way, if you don't know that you have eternal life, eternal life is a big deal, and it only comes through faith in Jesus Christ. So so now let's jump into Romans 7. The first part of Romans 7 is, is not that controversial, to be honest. So we have this big theme in verse 1 where he says, the law only has authority over someone as long as the person lives. So now he's... Now, one point here, Paul definitely moves to a discussion about the law here. In fact, literally every single verse coming up in Romans 7, this first part of Romans 7, mentions the law, every single verse. So what is Paul talking about? He's talking about the law. He then gets in, so in this law, he says that the law only has authority over someone as long as the person lives, right? And then he goes into this earthly example of the law of marriage, that if two people are married and they're both still alive, they're under the law of marriage. But as soon as one of the persons dies, there's, they're no longer under the law of marriage. They're free to go marry someone else, right? We understand that. That's an earthly example. So in verse 4, he says, So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, and now you belong to others. So just like the woman, we've died to the law Think Galatians 2.20 there, right? Mm -hmm. I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. So the believer has been released from the law. We're no longer under the law. We now belong to God and are slaves to righteousness. We belong to God. That kind of conjures up 1 Corinthians 6, where he says, you're not your own. You've been bought with a price. We are God's possessions. We are now his. Verse 5, he then says that we... 
For when we were in the realm of the flesh, well, that's the unsaved, we were bound by the law. That's the old self, the unsaved self. But now we've been released from the law so that we can serve in the new way by the Spirit, right? The saved. Well, he's going to talk about the Spirit in chapter 8, so hang on to that one. And now we get to this section of that's that the my NIV study Bible says, struggling with sin. Now, I want to point out that your titles that are in your Bible are not part of the Word of God. Mm-hmm. I hope everybody understands that. These are titles that were added by the translators, whichever Bible you have. So in my case, I have a Zondervan NIV study Bible. Well, that translator group put that title at this, at this section, right? So that's not part of the Bible. But I think that's influenced a lot of people and said, oh, this is Paul, as a believer, struggling with sin. Well, that's what we're discussing here, so we're mm-hmm. going to find out. So then Paul goes into from 7 to, 7 to 12 or 7 to 13, he begins to talk about this concept. Well, if the, if the law, is the law good or is it bad? In other words, if the law has led to death, sin and death, as he said, well, isn't the law bad? And he said, no, 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 the law is good. And it's, it's basically the law was used to point out his sin. So I think we understand that because it, Paul talks about this elsewhere, like in Galatians, where it says, so the law was your guardian to lead you to Christ, basically. If it wasn't for the law, man wouldn't know what sin was. So the law came to point out our sin and brought death, it, Paul says. So that for a part, um, he says, basically, so the progression is the law came, it stirred up the sin in me, which brings death in me. And so the question is, well, then isn't the law bad? And Paul says, no, no, it's good. It's good. It did its job, right? The law did its job. So he says in 13, did that which was good then become death to me? And he says, by no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, right? This is why the commandment came, basically. So we get that. The law pointed out our sin, and therefore it was good. Now we get to 14. Here's, here comes the controversy, right? So what's kind of, we're going to go through this a little bit slower in the time that we have remaining because this is where we're going to pick apart a little bit more. So verse 14, he says this, we know that the law is spiritual, it's good, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. So here we have to decide from here on to the rest of the chapter, is Paul talking about himself as a believer or before he was a believer? Well, let's look at the clues and let's look at the descriptions. He just says he's unspiritual. Isn't a believer filled with the Spirit of God? And he says, I'm sold as a slave to sin. And like the old commentators of old, I finally looked at that and said, wait a minute here. A believer is not a slave to sin. A believer has died to sin. They've been set freed from sin and are now a slave to righteousness, Romans 6, 19. So Paul is saying here that he's a slave to sin. That has to be Paul describing himself before he was born again. Then we get to verse 15. I do not understand what I do for what I want to do. I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And so we, I, I know that we as believers, because even though we've been born again, we're no longer slaves to sin, we're slaves to righteousness, we have the Spirit of God in, in us, God has made us holy in his eyes, what do we do? 
we continue to go on and miss the mark, don't we? We struggle from time to time. Yeah. So here's the struggle. So we identify with this struggle. Now, the question is, is that the struggle Paul's talking about or not? And I say no. So even though I know I get it, we identify this, identify with this passage. But this is not. Paul, this is Paul as a slave to sin who was not able to do, to do what? Live a good Christian life or do the righteous requirements that the law demanded? Remember, he's talking about the law here. Mm -hmm. So when Paul says, I do not understand what I do for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. Now, he's going to say in a minute that he delights in the law of God, but can't do it. Mm. He's talking about the law here. We as Christians who are no longer under the law look at this and say, well, yeah, we identify with this because in our Christian walk, we kind of fall short of God's call on our life every single day, right? I've asked this before. Does anybody ever get to the point where they're no longer sinning even as a born-again believer? Now, and I say no, there's no person out there who can make that claim. The only person who I think can ever make that claim that's ever walked the face of the earth is Christ himself, right, who was without sin. All the rest of us, even though God has now made us a slave to righteousness, I think we all fall short our whole life. But a Christian has been, so he says, I can't do it. I'm not able to do it. And I think what he's talking about is not the Christian walk, but following the law. And we know that the law was, no one became righteous by observing the law. No one could follow the law. It was an impossibility. And that is what I think Paul's lament is right here. So then 16. Oh, this one's big. He then says, and if I do not want and if I do what I do not want to do, this is hard to read, but this whole doo-doo chapter. <laughs> I admit that the law is good. We already established that. In that case, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me. So I have a very simple question. Can God move into a man's heart if there's still sin in the tent? Or does he need to clean, cleanse the person, forgive the person, wash them clean in order to dwell in them? You see what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. Clothe them with righteousness before yeah. he can enter. So one of the things that God does for a sinful man, because we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everybody has sinned. We've all sinned. And so before God, who is holy and perfect and righteous and pure and clean, before he can move in, one of the concepts that we have in New Testament Christianity is that he first has to cleanse you completely, forgive you of all unrighteousness, so that he can move in and be joined with you. So he takes care of the sin problem before he actually is united with you. Mm -hmm. So if you're united with the Holy God, he's got to make you holy first in order to be united with you. So he takes care of the sin problem. So I would argue that no born-again believer would ever say that there is still sin living in me. And then I've got several examples here of where that's declared in okay. the New Testament. Okay, I hate to take a break, but we need to. When we come back, lots more with Jeff Verdorn. We're talking about Romans chapter 7. Don't go anywhere. I'm sure you won't. We'll be right back.
All right, we are back with Jeff Verdorn. We're here talking about Romans chapter 7. Jeff, I think we last left off in verse 16. And if I do what I do not want to do, I admit that the law is good. In that case, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. Yeah, so the core question is, is this Paul as a believer or as, as an unbeliever? And he says that sin is still living in him. And I want to go through some of the concepts of the New Testament to show that sin for the for a true believer is no longer a problem. I mean, this is what the blood of Christ is all about, right? That we have been set free from sin. So Christians are free now positionally from the power of sin. We have been forgiven. God washes us clean so that he can come in and dwell in the believer. And when you think about this, if God is holy and righteous and pure, he can't come move into something that's sinful. So he has to cleanse the vessel, if you will, before he moves in. Have you ever canned anything in your lifetime? Or maybe you saw you watched your grandmother can no. something? No, it's a beautiful... I have. <laughs> it's a, I, I, I have actually been in my grandmother's basement years ago and watched her can things. And do you know what the first thing they do? They take the jar and they sterilize it. They clean it, Mm -hmm. right? Forgiven. Then they fill it with whatever, apples or pears or whatever, you know, we're filled with the new life of Christ. And then it's sealed. It's sealed with this hot wax that they pour over it and then they put the lid and they seal it down. That's a beautiful kind of simple earthly picture of salvation. God cleanses you, fills you, and seals you. So now nothing unclean ever gets into that jar, Mm. that can jar. That's what Paul's talking about. So before he was saved, he had filth in him, sin in him. After you're saved, a believer doesn't. You've been forgiven. Ephesians 1.7 says you've been forgiven. Colossians 1.14 says you've been forgiven. That's why the Bible, and Paul specifically, declares us, the believers, as saints. So Paul, lots of his letters, he starts with, to the saints in Ephesus, to the saints in Colossae. Mm -hmm. Well, do you know what saint means? It's the Greek word hagios, and it virtually means holy, right? You're cleansed. Mm -hmm. You're a saint. God no longer sees you as a sinner. He sees you as a saint. So I often say, you know that phrase that it's used all the time, oh, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. Mm -hmm. And we hear it often. And I, I, I correct people. I just try and be gentle about it, but it's like, oh, just add one little word to that. I was a sinner saved by grace. I'm a saint saved by grace. Do you see positionally how different that is Mm -hmm. and how critical of understanding that is? You're no longer a sinner. You are a saint. Positionally, you've been moved from being a sinner to being a saint. So I could greet you by saying, hello, holy one. Or Saint Jeff. Saint, you know, yeah, I don't, Saint I'm, not, Jeff, I'm not doing right? that anytime soon. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah, don't you have to die to become a saint? In I, some? I know. I don't think so. All okay. right, Saint All Jeff, right. where do we pick up? All right. So we're obviously God could not unite Himself with anything that still has sin in it. So in First John three five it says, "But you know that He appeared so that He might take away our sins." Isn't that a great verse? I love it. So That's if, First John three five. First John three five. If He's taken our sins away. Paul would never say that sin is still living in me. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and purify us 
of all unrighteousness. I think that's a salvation verse that simply describes that when we come to God for salvation, he will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all of righteousness. Therefore, Paul would never say there's still sin living in him. And one more on this part, because there's a couple other very difficult passages, and I, I won't go through them all, but one, for example, is 1 John 3, 9. And it says that no one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. Have you ever heard that passage and gone, man, what is, what is John talking about there? What do you mean? I know I continue to sin even as a born-again believer. Well, I submit that this is the same sin that Paul is talking about in Romans 7 that's no longer in him. So think of it this way. It's like John saying, no one who is born of God continues in sin, continues to have sin in them, because God's seed is in them. God's presence is in them. You're now united with the Holy One, right? Mm -hmm. He cannot go on in sin because he's been born of God. You see that? So I think that difficult verse that has been difficult for many over the centuries also relates to this Romans 7, that sin has been taken care of. We're saints without sin in us, right? Now, saints, do we still fall short? Do we still do things that fall short of God's perfect plan? Yes, we do. So, all right, verse 18. Paul says, I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. Well, here he says, well, I've got the desire. So some say, well, only a believer would have the desire to do what's good. Um, but I argue here, he says, he then goes on to say, uh, verse 20, that it's sin living in him. So that's, we've already talked about that. And then verse 21, he says, so I this, find this law at work that although I want to do good, the evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but he can't carry it out. Okay, what is this? Well, I think this is the picture of Paul. Remember, he was a Pharisee. He, was, he loved the law. He wanted to follow the law. He tried to follow the law. Now, obviously, following the law never led to righteousness for anybody. And here he says, but I can't carry it out. In fact, in Romans 8, it says that the mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. Well, clearly, this is an unsaved person. He does not to submit to God's law, nor can he do so. In other words, you can't do it. Mm -hmm. Paul is a Pharisee, delighted in God's law. He, he wanted to do it, but he had no power to do it. He delighted in the law, just like David. David, you know, in the Psalms, he says, blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord. Psalm 119, every single verse is a verse of delight over God's law, but none of them could actually do it. None of them could actually carry it out. And so we have this picture then in verse 23 where he says, oh, but I see this other law at work waging within me that I am a prisoner to the law of sin at work within me. Once again, is a believer a prisoner of the law of sin. And I say, no way. Yeah. A Christian has been set free from the law. A Christian has been set free of sin to serve in a new way by the Spirit. Mm -hmm. Here's a question from a listener. Can you elaborate on how this does not mean a Christian will never sin? 
because we're talking about our position, mm-hmm. our position before God. So this is not, you know, there, there's kind of a, a, some theologians will say we have the positional and volitional sin or practical sin of what we actually do or, you know, how we act in this world. So this is Paul. So many will see this as kind of a volitional discussion. And we identify with, oh, well, I, I know I still sin. So this is me lamenting that, why do I continue to do what I don't want to do? It's like, Lord, help me. I keep falling short of your you know, will in my life, and I fall short of it. That's volitional or practical sin. The positional sin is a person either has sin in them, is a sinner, or doesn't have sin in them, they're a saint. Now, saints still sin. We all know that, mm-hmm. right? So I think that's the, the difference is positionally, have we been forgiven? And if we have been forgiven and have been washed clean and are sealed with God, now even though we go out, so by the way, this is where Romans 6 all started. Paul basically says, you've been saved, forgiven, sealed by the grace of God, and you have eternal life, and you're, that, that's it. And some might say, well, then can I just go do whatever I want? If I have this assurance of salvation, I've been covered by the blood, can I do whatever I want? And Paul really kind of anticipates that question at the beginning of Romans 6 and says, well, shall I go on sinning so that grace may abound? Well, what does he say? By no means. I love the King James. It says, God forbid, (laughs) you've died to sin. How can you live in it any longer? And yet we still do, don't we? We still, even though we've died to sin, and Paul is exhorting us, well, then why would you go and unite yourself with the things of the world? I know we still do. We still fall short. But thank goodness we have a God that designed a system of salvation that once you've been forgiven, he says things like, he separates our sin as far as the east is from the west, and he remembers it no more. Right? He no longer counts our sins against us. There's no sin living in you. So even though we're a saint that happens to sin, we have a God that's already paid the price completely and washed us completely clean and does not remember our sins no more. Fantastic. Another listener said, how do we handle believers who go on willfully sinning? And what if we have a different views on what qualifies as sin? <laughs> well, you need to know the word mm-hmm. so that we can know what qualifies as sin and what doesn't qualify for sin. Um, you know, is some denominations have decided that dancing and rock and roll music are the, you know, the worst of sins, right? Mm-hmm. Are they, or is that, you know, whatever, but we better not go down that path. Right. So, <laughs> um, so what do you do? Well, I think the new Testament is clear. If you see a brother who is in sin, go point these things out to your brother. The goal is restoration, right? So gently in grace and in truth, we go to our brother and say, Hey brother, I see that you confess Christ with your mouth, but I'm looking at your actions. Do you really think that these kinds of actions are appropriate for a believer in Christ? You know, what's that? There's a passage that says about sexual morality that, you know, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Why would you go join yourself with a a prostitute, I think the verse says, right? So should we be, should, if we've been made holy, should now does God want us to live holy in this world? Absolutely. So that's not a question. If you think that this whole topic is a license to sin, 
you're, you're absolutely wrong because Paul actually addressed that in Romans 6 verse 1. It's a license from sin, from the eternal consequences of sin, right? You can't sin your way out of the grace of God. You are either saved or you're not saved. Now, one more point on this because I think this is an important concept. If you're born again and you're sinning in some way, I don't think you can ever lose your eternal life. I'm a firm believer in the, the concept of assurance of salvation. But are there earthly consequences in this world for bad behavior? And I think we all know that's, of course, there is. Um, so there are consequences, but one of them doesn't have to do with your salvation in Christ. Mm-hmm. All right, Jeff, I think what I want to do is take a short break, and when we come back, I want to pick up in verse 24, what a wretched man I am. What a wretched man I am. I want to find out more about that. Jeff Verdorn is my guest. We're going to take 90 seconds. Be right back. Back to the show. Jeff Redorn's my guest. We are talking about Romans chapter 7. Jeff, before we go to verse 24 in chapter 7, let's go to 2 Peter 1 3. I think that's an important verse to bring into the discussion. Yeah, this is. Do you have it handy? uh, Well, I have part of it handy. He says uh, that a Christian basically has been given everything they need for the godly life. And so this is part of this concept. If Paul says, well, why do I continue to do what I don't want to do and can't? I'm powerless. I can't do it. And yet Peter says and declares through God that you've been given everything you need for living this Christian life. Um, so you do have the power to live it out. And, uh, and that's from God. So, um, and do we still fall short in how we do it? Yes, but it's not God's fault. He's given us everything we need to live that life out. So, you know, I I, I met, I got a chance to meet the uh, the chaplain of the PGA Tour a while ago, and he wrote this book called Mulligan. And I loved it because it's this concept right here. He says, you know, the Christian walk is kind of like a game of golf. Leave it to a golfer to, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, analyze everything in terms of golf, right? And he says, it's like you're golfing with the Lord and every shot he gives you a mulligan. And a mulligan. Do you know what a mulligan yeah. is? A mulligan is a do-over. Right. Right. You get to hit the shot again. And he said, every shot, you get a mulligan. In fact, you get as many mulligans as you want. And he said, but eventually, the maturing Christian will say, you know what? I want to try to do it right the first time. I don't want to take all these mulligans. I want to get it right the first time. And it leads to this desire to please the Lord and live holy and pleasing to him, mm-hmm. as Paul writes. So. Yeah, the sanctification process is a long one, isn't it? It is. Yeah. All right, let's jump back to chapter 7 in verse 24, what a wretched man I am. Oh, so Paul at the end of this, you know, you can just hear the lament in Paul's voice when we get to 24. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Well, once again, is a Christian subject to death? or eternal life, eternal as life. we saw at the end of Romans 6. And who is a wretched man? I have one of my lists is all the ways that God describes an unbeliever and all the ways that God describes a believer. 
it's a it's a great list. In fact, we did it on air one time. Well, you know who we were and who we are now. Who we were without Christ. Who we are in Christ. Well, guess where the wretched man falls? What side of that ledger? In fact, this word for wretched is only used twice in all of Scripture. The once is here, and the other places in in Revelation where the church of Laodicea says, oh, you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Well, guess what? Those are all descriptions of the unsaved. Unregenerate man. Unregenerate man. Mm-hmm. So when Paul simply says that he's wretched man, he's absolutely describing an unregenerate man. And then he says, who will rescue me? Well, hello, a Christian has been rescued. In fact, Colossians 1.13 says that he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. You've been rescued. So Paul, calling himself a wretched man, desiring to be rescued, has to be, I think, a picture of Paul talking about himself before he was saved, not after. Because Paul would know that he's no longer a wretched man but a saint in God's eyes, holy and blameless and pure and righteous, and that he's already been rescued, Colossians 1.13. So he says then, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Finally, Paul says, now, who, who has now done this for me? And it's through Christ, obviously. Salvation is only through him. All right, so I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. Hmm. So the last part. The last part. You know what? And then we get to that last little part there. And it, it, what is it? I'm going to read it to you in the King James. Okay. And it's also somewhere in the, in the NASB. And I'm going to read it, and, and let's see if it makes a little bit different, a little bit different meaning because this this is one of these a little bit difficult passages here. So in the King James it says, so then with my mind I myself serve the law of God. He's been talking about the law. That's what he's trying to do. But with the flesh the law of sin. And so I think this is a simple summary statement to what he just described the unsaved man that says, oh I know I'm a, I want to serve the law but I am a, I'm, I, in my flesh, basically, I'm still this slave to sin, and I have no power to do it. So I think in the NIV, it, it misses that a little bit and how they've put that sentence together. But in the King James and in the NASB, I think it's a little bit clearer. I think it's simply a summary statement that says this, this um, he wants to follow the law, but he can't, right? And that's the end of seven, and we get to eight. And here's the big contrast of all, right? I know I used to be describing the man who once was, who was a slave to sin, who had sin living in him, who was a prisoner to the law of sin and death. And now, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Well, now, clearly, he's talking about the saved, right? Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. All this stuff that I was just talking about, if you are in Christ, you've been set free from it. And there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Whoa, what a great therefore, right? And as an old pastor of mine says, anytime you see the word therefore, 
You need to understand what it's there for, right? And it's there as a major contrast between what Paul was just describing as the unregenerate man who's still a slave to sin, all right? And then, of course, then we get to 8, and so from Romans 7, it was all this discussion about an unsaved person, and 8, now we're no condemnation, we've been set free. Verse 3, he says, so he's condemned sin in the flesh. Remember in Romans 7, he said, there's still sin living in me? In Romans 8, for the believer, he says, no, he's condemned that sin in the flesh, right? And then he gets to 4. Ah, four, so great. I teach this class called Law Versus Grace, and the heart of the entire class is this verse right here, Romans 8, 4. In order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, the unsaved, but live according to the Spirit, the saved. Do you understand what that's saying? He's saying that the righteous requirements of the law have been met in us. God now sees the born-again believer as if they have obeyed the law of God their entire life. (laughs) Whoa. Let me say that again. God now sees the born-again believer as if they've obeyed the law of God their entire lives. Now, I know nobody who's obeyed the law perfectly, except for one who is Christ. Oh, and I'm in Christ God now sees me with his righteousness, So, and Christ fulfilled the law. Remember, he completed the law. He consummated the law so that whoever believes in him, God now sees them as if they followed the law their whole lives. That's what it says, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us. And then he goes back and forth between the saved and unsaved again, because those are living according with the flesh, think the Roman 7 guy, have their minds what the flesh desires, but those who live according to the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires, the saved. The mind governed by the flesh, unsaved, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace, the saved. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God, the unsaved. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God, but those who are in the realm of the Spirit, the saved, If indeed the Spirit lives in you, which the Spirit does live in every single person who is a born-again believer, and if anybody who does not have the Spirit of Christ unsaved, they don't belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, the saved, then even though your body is subjected to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness, because he's living in you, and he will give life to your mortal bodies. Ah, the end of it, glorification. So what's the hope of the believer who's saved? Eventually, that's glorification, which comes, obviously, when we're glorified, when, when the mortal will be clothed in immortality. And then the rest of it is basically this description of living by the Spirit. So now that you are a believer of God, we are to be led by the Spirit because we're His children. We're no longer slaves, but what we're children and heirs. That's who you are. That's who God has made you. And it's like God is saying, go live it out. And so when you think about Romans 6, this true struggle of now that I've been saved, now that I'm a slave to righteousness, he says in Romans 6, there's three key words there, no, count, offer, verse 9, verse 11, verse uh, 13. No, 
this truth. You want to live holy for him? Know it. Understand it. Count yourself, or as the Southerners would say, reckon yourself, right, in the King James Version, dead to sin. It's been taken care of. Count yourself dead to sin. And offer, and the third key word in Romans 6, offer yourself to God, which brings up that Revelation, I'm sorry, Romans 12 verse. Therefore, offer yourself as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to the Lord. This is our spiritual act of worship. But you know what the problem with being a living sacrifice is? We crawl up on the altar, we lay ourselves before God and said, Lord, use me however you want. Oh, wait a minute, what's that over there? <laughs> yeah, that's new shiny object. Yeah. yeah, and we crawl off the altar and we go follow our own desires and wills. And so we come back to God and we lay ourselves up there again as a living sacrifice. Oh, well, what, what's that over there? And that's kind of the normal Christian walk, isn't it? Yeah, Jeff, this has been an ambitious project for us to undertake Thank you for being here, and and uh, I'm going to have to go back and listen to this tonight more than once. Hmm. Thank I you. I think we got through it. You're welcome, Thank you, Bill. Thank you. Jeff Ferdinand has been my guest. That wraps up our show for the day. You can go to MyFaithRadio.com to hear it all over again or anything you missed. Have a great night. I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.